Hello, hello, my name is Michael, and I welcome you to What's Your Career, where careers are examined one at a time. Our guest is Dr. Carrie Cutler, a mother of eight and an assistant clinical professor at the University of Houston. Carrie has a passion for mathematics education, and she feels privileged to teach the future elementary school teachers of America. Carrie describes the different paths to becoming a professor at a university, as well as the different types of professor positions. Carrie is a fabulous professor because she loves her students, loves mathematics, and feels great pride in her work. Join me as we talk with Dr. Carrie Cutler. Carrie Cutler, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much, Michael. So tell everyone a little bit about yourself. Who are you? All right. I am Dr. Carrie Cutler. I am a clinical assistant professor at the University of Houston, where I teach in the College of Education and I teach mathematics education. I have been um, working at the University of Houston part-time for about 12 years and full-time for six years. And it's a great job. I love it. Okay. So 12 years at the University of Houston and you love it. Yeah, 12, 12 years part-time, and now I've been full-time for six years. So okay. 18 years all together. Okay. So, Carrie, how would you rate your job function from 1 to 10? 1 being, you know, the worst job ever, and 10 would be your dream job. Hmm. I would say that my job function would probably be a 9. I really love the, the work that I do, but I would be happy to have a few little tweaks. Okay. I'd love to hear about that a little bit later on. Okay. I feel like everybody is, you know, likes to say eight or nine. Nobody likes to give it a 10 out of 10 because there's always just something that could make their job a little sweeter, a little bit better. And I think that's okay. I think that's a good thing. If if you're a hundred percent satisfied with what you do, then, then you're probably missing out on some learning or growing opportunities in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think it's because we are all a little bit ambitious and if we, you know, feel 100% satisfied with our position, then we won't be considered ambitious to ourselves anymore. So we want to keep that going. Hey, that's a good piece of advice. I like that. Um, so how happy are you at your job? Kind of a similar question, but but more on the happiness rather than the function scale from, from one to 10. How happy are you? Hmm, I think, again, I'd rate it a nine. Um, I am happy all the time that I'm working with my students and um, enjoy my colleagues very much. I wish I didn't have such a long commute. That's my downfall right there. Oh. Hour and 15 minute commute one way is a little bit much. Ooh, that is, that is a long commute. <laughs> and I don't blame you at all for, <laughs> for not enjoying that part of your work. Um, okay, great. Um, so tell me a little bit about your education. Okay. Well, to become a college professor in most fields, you need to have um, a terminal degree, which is for most fields, a doctorate. So I have a doctorate of education and it's in curriculum and instruction. And I also have a master's degree in teaching and learning. And then of course I have my bachelor's degree and it's in elementary education. Uh, okay. So I earned my um, bachelor's degree at Utah State University. And then I attended Brigham Young University for my master's. And I graduated from the University of Houston with my doctorate uh, 15 years ago. Okay. So did you do those degrees back to back to back? Or did you kind of take your time on, on getting to where you are now? 
Usually, in order to be admitted to a master's degree program in education, you have to have three years of successful classroom experience. That's most degree programs, and that's what BYU had at the time when I got my master's. So I had three years of teaching, and then I went back to get my master's at, at Brigham Young. And after I finished my master's, um, let's see, I think it was about maybe a year and a half or so before I started my doctorate. Yeah, not too long. Not okay. Too long. So yeah, that was pretty quick. You didn't you didn't take 10 years off to work or to be with your kids or anything like that. You just went back to back to back nearly um, with your education. Wow. Yeah, pretty much. And that was because my husband kept encouraging me to keep going. Oh, <laughs> keep awesome. Getting on with it, so. Well, that's yeah. a great husband. <laughs> yes. It's very great. admirable. Okay. Um, and how long was, uh, I assume your master's program was like a two-year program. Yes, it took about two years. It was a Master of Arts degree. And um, in order to get the Master of Arts, you had, or excuse me, Master of Science, excuse me, Master of Science, you had to do a thesis. The other option for the program was to get a Master's of Education. And you don't have to do a thesis or write original research for that program. You have to do a project, you know, write a significant paper, but it's not uh, the academic rigor that the Masters of Science was. So that took a full two years to do that Masters of Science. And I did a, a thesis. I did a study um, studying how children um, learn mathematics and then uh, defended that study, that th thesis before a committee and um, was awarded my master's degree. Yeah, that's that's a lot of work. I, I as well got a master's degree and wrote a thesis and had to present it before the committee. And, oh man, that, that was a stressful time. And that was a lot of work. Um, and I assume it was a lot of work for you as well, but, but good job getting it done. And then, you know, shortly after that, you, you know, a year, year and a half, you said you moved on to go get a PhD. Now, was it your plan all along to get your bachelor's, master's and PhD, or did that evolve over time a little bit? I think it evolved a bit, but honestly, one thing that attracted me to um, teaching at the university level was I felt it was a bit more flexible um, and that I would be able to uh, manage a family at the same time I was building my career. And it did turn out to be that way because a classroom teacher that's not at the university level has to be at school five days a week from seven to four, four thirty or five. And um, that works great for some people, but I really wanted to have a little bit more flexibility. And so when I was looking what to do next with my career, I thought that maybe teaching at the university would have that, you know, allowance for working from home part of the time or, or teaching classes on a limited basis um, when I needed to. And it's worked out well. Awesome. So, so did you make that decision to get a PhD maybe during your master's program or was it after you completed or during your bachelor's? Uh, during my bachelor's, I had a wonderful professor. Her name was Elizabeth Jared and she just was such a vivacious and interesting person and so um, enthusiastic about her content that she was teaching. And she was a great example to me. And I thought, I kind of want to be like her when I grow up, even though she was probably only five years older than me at the time when I look <laughs> back now. And then when I got to, to Brigham Young, um, 
I, I was trying to decide between the MED, the Master's of Education, or the MS. And I had uh, my advisor was named Eula Monroe, and she was from Kentucky. And she came to BYU just on a, an exchange, and she ended up staying there wow. uh, for, for 20 years. I know. She was the only Baptist on campus, I think. She was such a neat lady. But she really encouraged me to, to push myself and to get the the MS instead of the MED so that I would have that experience doing research because she really told me that I should continue on and get a doctorate. And so she invited me to be her teaching assistant um, for her classes. She was teaching to undergraduates, even though I was only a master's student myself and only had three years of experience teaching in the classroom. She had me help her teach that class. And um, she had to go on sabbatical when her mom became ill and I was the teacher of record for the class for the next semester. And boy, it was difficult, really hard, but so rewarding. And I just fell in love with teaching adults. And then I knew that I would need to continue to get my doctorate if I wanted to have a full-time position at a university. Awesome story. I can definitely relate to that. I haven't mentioned this on the podcast, but when I was in college, I had the opportunity of teaching bowling and racquetball classes for as an undergraduate and a graduate student, I was teaching college courses and granted they weren't rigorous or academic, but I had to teach a number of things. I had to administer tests and I had to grade and it was the best experience ever. I really loved being around other college students, being the instructor, teaching, being in that environment oh, I can really relate to how you must have felt at that moment, you know, as a TA and then and then basically as a full-time instructor or professor. Um, it's very rewarding. And teaching, teaching it, it's the career that, you know, if you don't understand, you don't understand. But the people that get it and the people that have done it and have an appreciation for it really understand that, that it is very rewarding and it, it just, it makes you feel good inside. And so it sounds like you just kind of chased that. And so you went off and you got your, your doctorate degree. That's um, right. And how, how long did that take? Uh, it took about, let's see, it took about five years, five okay. years. Yeah. Just full, about four time. Four or five. No, it was part time. I wasn't considered a full time doctoral student. Um, so I didn't have an assistantship or <laughs> any kind of fellowship to help pay for it. So I went part time and we just paid for it as we went along. And um, I started my doctorate and I had two kids uh, a one year old and a four year old. And um, not too long after I started, I got pregnant with our third baby and I thought I would quit. I thought I would stop and not go, go to school anymore. And my husband said, why would you stop? I don't understand. I can help you with the kids. Your classes are at night anyway. And I said, well, I just thought that that's what you do. And he said, the time is going to pass anyway. And life will never be less complex for you than it is right now. These kids are little, they don't require much, they don't have any after-school activities, and you're you're free to go and do it. So I loved that support from him. And actually, if you are listening from the Houston area, you can appreciate the sacrifice that he made. We lived in the Woodlands, which is an hour north of Houston. And of course, my classes were at the University of Houston, which is downtown in the main part of downtown. 
And my husband worked downtown. So every day that I had class, my classes started at 530. So when the kids got done with school, with kindergarten or whatever, they would hop in the car with me and I'd bring the kids downtown. I would meet my husband at his building. He would take the kids with him on the bus home <laughs> back up to the woodlands and I would drive over to the University of Houston and I have my classes. So I, I just am amazed. And this was before there were laptops or tablets or little devices to keep kids busy. I would just pack a little backpack for him with you know, raisins and fruit snacks and some books. And he kept the kids busy for an hour and quiet on the bus for a couple of years. So that's, that's a wonderful support system. Oh, that is such a sacrifice. <laughs> yes. I have young children right now. And, oh, the thought of, you know, really only seeing your spouse for a few minutes and hauling kids up and down through Houston. I mean, that, that is a large sacrifice, but it sounds like it's paid off. Uh, you did your doctorate program and you, you, you maybe struggled through it for a few years with little kids. Yeah. Um, and then I assume I, as part of your doctorate program, did you have to write research, get, get a dissertation done and have a few publications as well? Yes, I sure did. Um, something that helps when you're, you're starting your doctorate is to try to find a mentor, uh, a, a dissertation advisor whose interests in research align with your own and who's enthusiastic about having you learn more about their research and, and turning their, their topic toward your own dissertation. So while I was taking other classes, I would always try to um, make a good relationship with the professors and find out what their research interests were so that when I was ready to, to really focus on my dissertation, I would have a bunch of professors who I could ask for advice and who could serve on my committee. And um, as you are working on your doctorate, it's a good idea to choose that topic early so that most of the papers that you write for your other classes can be somehow um, intertwined with your dissertation and so that you already have some of the content written when it's time to get writing. And of course, choosing a topic is a huge worry and uh, doing all of the uh, hoops that you have to jump to through to have human subjects review um, from the university to approve your study and all of those things are so much work and and take so much time but that's what i tell people i don't think getting a doctorate is so much about being intelligent as it is about being determined there are hoops that you have to go through there are hours and hours that you have to spend at the library doing research and writing and revising and anybody who's willing to put that kind of work in is going to be okay so don't be uh, afraid to continue your education because you don't think that you're smart enough. You are good enough if you just keep pushing forward. Well, that is very sound advice. And I, I agree with you completely. Um, it's, it's baby steps. That's the way, you know, how do you eat an elephant? You eat it one bite at a time, right? That Looking at a doctorate right. degree up on the wall, you know, four years, multiple publications. I mean, that sounds like a lot and it is a lot. But you just go one day at a time, one step at a time, one class at a time, one you know piece of research at a time, and you can get it done. It's it's more, uh, uh, you know, it tells more about your hard work and your work ethic rather than your your brains, your smarts. 
Yep, I agree. And I, I really liked when my husband said, those these years are going to pass either way. What do you want to be doing during these years? You know, do you want to be learning more and improving yourself and getting this advanced degree? Or is there something else that you want to be doing? Because I'll support you in doing whatever that is. You know, taking your kids to the park every day is a great thing, too. So decide what you want to do and, yeah. and push forward with it. Yeah, excellent. Well, let's uh, let's fast forward just a little bit. Um, so after you got your degree, your doctorate degree, how did you land your first job? Was your first job at the University of Houston or did you do something else for a while? Well, I had that teaching experience at um, when I received my master's. So I already had some teaching experience on the books and that was great. And when I started my doctorate at the University of Houston, they needed part-time professors, adjunct professors to teach some of their undergraduate courses. And because I already had experience teaching those courses, it was easy for me to get a teaching position working part-time at the University of Houston, teaching the exact same courses that I taught um, at Brigham Young when I was working on my master's. So that worked out great. In fact, it was just about the same amount of money that I got paid for teaching those classes that I needed to pay for tuition each semester. So it really um, helped out. It just kind of was a straight across trade. And I really loved those early years of teaching, but boy, I look back and I think, oh, I've come so far. (laughs) I am such a um, more competent professor now, but I think everybody feels that way about their career. And I think it would be sad if we didn't feel that way because (laughs) that means what we aren't um, being reflective about our work or we're not um, having that critical eye that helps us improve. So if we're not embarrassed of our first few years of our career, then I think we might be heading in the wrong direction. Hey, I like that. I can't say I've ever thought of that specifically, but it's very true. I look at my first, you know, several months or year of my job and I'm like, oh boy, I took way too long to do anything. Uh, But you get better. You get better. Your, your workflow improves and you learn processes better and Uh, So that's absolutely a true statement. And especially for something like teaching, right? It's a skill that is kind of in the moment. And, uh, you know, it's not something you just, you can get up and do. You've got to practice it and you've got to learn your content. You've got to learn how your students react. And and I'm sure you've come a long way in your, let's see, 18 years of, (laughs) of teaching. So you started off doing adjunct and that was, that was 12 years of adjunct. So dive into that a little bit. What did that look like? Um, You know, how did you get paid? How many hours did you work? What were your duties? You know, you know, how did you spend your time working? And, uh, you know, dive into that a little bit. Okay, well, I as an adjunct, you don't have any um, promise of a continuing contract. So each semester, you have to be rehired. And if they need you great, and if they don't, then sorry, right? So as an adjunct, I worked at, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four different institutions of higher education, um, one junior college and three universities. And sometimes I'd be, they'd be overlapping and I'd teach classes at multiple universities at the same time. I remember one semester I was teaching at three different universities and I was teaching at five different campuses for those universities and five different classes. It was so crazy, so crazy. But when you're an adjunct, you don't really have the luxury of of passing up very many offers because you don't know when the next one will come. And you also are trying to 
kind of get your foot in the door. If something permanent opens up, then you want to be someone that they think of. So being an adjunct is tricky. You don't have health insurance. You don't have you know benefits like that. You're a contract worker. And um, that's, that can be a tough life if that's your sole way of providing for your family. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I, I've heard some bad things about being an adjunct. Not that it's unrewarding or anything like that, but it's just very hard. You, you don't necessarily get paid well. Oftentimes, from, from what I've heard, you're not working like a full-time schedule and it's a lot of weekends and nights and kind of awkward schedules for a lot of people. And for some people, I get it. That works. That That's what they need. But but for people looking to just work a full-time job, that, that that's hard. It's hard to adjust to that kind of lifestyle. Oh, yeah. I loved it when my kids were young because then I could be home with them all day and then I would go to work in the evenings. And I could choose if I wanted to work one or two or three nights a week, you know, whatever worked best for our family. So for me, it was ideal for many years. I didn't have to worry about childcare. <laughs> we just did the trade-off, you know, my husband and I, and it worked out great. But as I got a little farther in my career, I, I wanted to have different opportunities. And um, an opportunity came up at the University of Houston for a full-time position, which is called a lecturer. So a lecturer is kind of between an adjunct and a regular professor. The lecturer is a full-time employee and they have a full teaching load, um, but they don't have some of the other opportunities to serve in the university or have continuing status. So when you're teaching college, you can move up in the ranks from assistant professor to associate to professor to full professor. And it takes a certain number of years for each of those moves. And when you're a lecturer, those years don't count toward any of those moves. So I worked as a lecturer for three years, I believe, maybe two years, uh, before a position opened up for a clinical assistant professorship, which I applied for and, and got. Okay, so as a lecturer, you had benefits and you had a full load of classes to teach you said is that right that's right yep i think um if i remember right i taught four classes which is considered a full load and they're three okay. hours a week okay so you taught four classes in a given semester uh did you have the opportunity to do any research or is that completely outside of of your teaching responsibility as lecturer? Uh, yeah, that wouldn't, you wouldn't have to um, have any kind of publications to be able to continue your lecture position. Yeah, you wouldn't be required to do that. But something I think a lot of people don't um, understand about higher education is that there are kind of two tracks for professors. There is a clinical track and there's a tenure track. So there's a tenure track um, where you are required to do research, original research, and publish it in journals. And you're required to apply for grants that bring money into the university to support the research that's going on there and to support the graduate students and things. And that kind of uh, track, that tenure track, 
is very, very rigorous. It's very um, intense. Those professors don't have a full teaching load that the clinical professors do. They might teach one or two classes a semester, and the rest of their time is supposed to be devoted to research and writing and mentoring doctoral students. And I am on the clinical track. That's the non-tenure track, because that is what opened up at the university at the time that I was ready to apply. And in a clinical position, your main responsibility is teaching. It's supposed to be 80% of your work is dedicated to teaching. And then the other 20% is divided between service to the university, working on committees, and also a little bit of creativity, creative activity, we call it in my department. And that might look like publishing, um, presentations, um, outreach to the community, those kinds of things. Okay. Yeah, I didn't actually know that distinction. And that sounds very obvious, uh, you know, between what a tenure professor is and a clinical professor. Is that standard across the U.S. at most universities? I would say it's somewhat standard. All universities kind of have their own way of, of organizing the tenure system. It just depends on how they choose to operate it. Um, some universities don't call it tenure. They call it continuing faculty status, status instead, mm-hmm. but it's really pretty much the same thing. So when you're thinking about getting your doctorate, you need to think about, am I a person that really loves teaching and wants to spend most of my time teaching at a university? Or am I a person who likes to teach, but also really loves to do research and, and to study in my field and publish in it? So that you can decide what kind of a doctoral program you want to go to. So if you want to be a researcher, you really need to find a doctoral program that where you can get a PhD. And that would be a rigorous research um, background that would get you ready for doing research in your profession. If you think I'm, I'm really more of a clinical person and maybe I don't even really want to teach at the university. Maybe I want to um work in a district office, writing curriculum or supporting administrators, then you could get what's called an EDD, a doctorate of education. And that is a a very rigorous program still, but it doesn't have as much research component. And in some EDD programs, you still have to write a dissertation. In mine, you did still had to write a dissertation. But in some EDD programs, you don't write a dissertation. Instead, you write another really substantial thing and they call it a project. And it's a little bit more practical. So think about that when you're choosing your your PhD program. Do you want a place that's going to be more of a research focus or a place that's going to prepare you for a clinical future? Wow. Real neat. I, I, I like hearing about that. Um, that is all information that I didn't know. Um, so thank you for sharing. <laughs> um, so, so tell me a little bit about your day. When you, so do you, now that you are a clinical professor and you have been for six years, do you go into the, the office every day at 7.30 or 9 or, or, and, and stay until 5 or 4.30 or 6 or you know, do you have a regular work day or do you still kind of bounce around between night classes and, you know, you don't come in on Fridays or things like that? How is it structured? So before COVID, I'll tell you about before COVID because COVID has changed a lot of expectations for kind of FaceTime at work. But before COVID, I taught usually three days a week. 
So I would definitely be on campus from 7.30 in the morning until 4.30 or 5 on those days of the week. And then the other days of the week, um, I would sometimes have meetings. Often on Fridays, we would have department meetings and committee meetings for committees that I'd serve on. And those would generally be on Fridays. So I would at least a couple of Fridays a month, I would have to go into the office. But um, at my university, and I can't speak for all of them, at my university, they they don't think about it as being like a, a time punch card, you know? Yeah. As long as you are are being productive and um, are you and you're doing your service and you're and you're teaching well and you're doing the creative activities that you need to do. It doesn't have to be done from your desk in your office. So I remember when I was applying for, oh, I guess a lecture position. I can't remember which one. I remember asking really specifically, do I need to be in the office every day from 730 till five? Because I just not I just can't do that. I just have too many little kids and, and these other um, responsibilities. And I remember the interviews, interviewers saying, oh, no, you don't have to do that. You can do your work from anywhere and you can you can come and see us as often as as we need you here. But you don't have to be in your office every day. We don't peek in to make sure you're at work. So that kind of flexibility is really nice as a professor. So usually now I teach three classes. I teach three days a week. So I go in at 7.30 in the morning and I come home at about five and I'm not teaching any evening classes anymore. Um, I kind of wish I were because I love the evening class crowd. I love those students. They're often non-traditional students, a little bit older. Yep. A little bit different experience set and um, have a different perspective on the things we're learning in class. So I really did love teaching at night and I do miss that. Okay. So if you were to assign some percentages to how you use your time, how would you do that? What percentage are you physically teaching and maybe preparing for teaching and grading for teaching and, and then maybe other things as well, office hours? Just how do you break up your time when, when you're working? Well, in our department, our department chair likes us to set um, goals really for ourselves. They call it your workload plan. And because I'm a clinical professor, my workload plan is 80% teaching, 10% service, and 10% creative activities. So really, I teach five classes this semester. I have an overload, which means they didn't have enough adjuncts, and I had to take one of the extra classes. Four four classes is full-time, and then I was willing to do an overload. So I'm teaching five classes. Does that come does that come with any additional compensation or, or benefits? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, okay. I get paid extra. So that doesn't count as service, but I do like to remind <laughs> my boss that it's nice of me to do it. It makes it so that you don't have to hire an adjunct. So even though you're paying me, it is still kind of nice. So just remember that when it's time to <laughs> do my evaluations. Sure. Um, but yeah, I really think that's about how I'd split my time and teaching takes a lot of time, even though I've been doing the same kind of position for 20 years, I still spend a lot of time preparing and changing things and revising and meeting with students takes a lot of time, but it's things that I like to do. And I, I like to improve my teaching. I don't like to just use the same lesson plans over and over again. Of course. Yeah, that's good. So, so do you have like... 10 or 15 hours a week where your door is just kind of open to students to come in office hours. 
You know, I have found the most successful thing for me with office hours is I have a little sign up genius and I send it around and it's for lunch with Dr. Cutler and people just sign up and then they bring their lunch in and we have lunch together and just chat about the class or about uh, what's going on in their lives or their future. I have a lot of students who want to talk about this exact same thing we're talking about today, Michael. And we spend time together doing that. Um, we're required to have a certain number of office hours on our syllabus and to be there during those hours. But my position's a little bit unique because I'm teaching seniors in college and they're getting their certification to be elementary school teachers. And so the, the senior year at our university, they spend the entire year in a public school classroom as a practicing teacher. So hmm. they are four days a week in an elementary school and they only come to campus one day a week. So they have two classes during that day and they also have an online class and then a seminar that they do. So right. they are very busy. They cannot come to campus any other day of the week. So I have to make myself available during that little lunchtime in between their classes so that we can have office hours and, and get to talk together. And I also have virtual office hours too. Okay. Okay, great. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what is, what is your the other 20% look like? How are you able to do community outreach or, or what things do you do when you're not focused on teaching? Well, I do, I do serve on, on committees at the university and um, like this semester I'm on the undergraduate committee. And so I get to help make policies about undergraduate programs and classes. And I'm also the department secretary. So I get to take notes during our department meetings and disseminate the notes, the minutes and, and do those kinds of things. So that's what I'm responsible for this year. But next year I might have different committee um, assignments and they're elected by your peers. So you may or may not get to have those opportunities just depending on, on if you get elected. For my creative activities, I do a lot, a lot, a lot of workshops for teachers. And that's my creative um, activities for the most part. A lot of workshops with preschool teachers and with elementary school teachers and how to teach math better. Okay. So you're setting up like free or paid workshops for, you know, local, local math teachers, I guess, to come to. Uh, when are they able to do that? If they're at school all the time, when are you holding these workshops? Well, a lot at night and a lot of Saturdays. Okay. A lot of Saturdays. So I also have a little um, kind of a side hustle. It's with a, a collab, the Collaborative for Children. It's a nonprofit in Houston that supports childcare centers and preschools with materials and professional development. And I do a lot of professional development for them. Um, school districts reach out to me quite a bit to do workshops for their teachers. And then I just have my own consulting that I do um, when people ask. But the freebies are mostly at conferences. So you usually don't get paid to present at a professional conference. You, you're, yep. It's considered, you know, service to the profession. So that would be also uh, a service and a creative activity. And my other creative activity is I do love to write. I have a few articles that are coming out this year from work that was done during COVID. And that was good writing time. And I also had a book that was just published. Um, it's how to help kids with math and help parents and teachers be um, better helpers, better math helpers. It's um, called Math Positive Mindsets, Growing a Child's Mind Without Losing Yours. 
wow, maybe I could use that book. <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my daughter is in kindergarten and already <gasps> she's doing some math things with her fingers that I'm, I'm I, that's not what I learned when I was going to school. So, <laughs> oh, that's exactly what the book is all about, Michael, because it does look different than and even though you're much, much, much younger than I am, it does look a little different from when you were in school. So it can be an intimidating topic, but the book is really um, t- teacher and parent friendly. The language is is funny and there's lots of stories about my own kids and my own teaching in it. So Okay. All right. One, one more time. Publicize your book a little bit. What was the name of it? It's called Math Positive Mindsets, Growing a Child's Mind Without Losing Yours. Awesome. Yes, by Dr. Carrie Cutler. That's right. And it's published by Math Solutions, which is an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Okay. And yeah. where can we find this book? You can find it on Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Well, awesome. Good Good for you, man. You're, you're so productive. You're able to do so many things. Um, <laughs> way to go. Uh, so a little bit of consulting on the side, uh, a little bit of writing, and full-time as a professor and full-time as a mother. So that that sounds like it keeps you real busy. Well, everybody has the same amount of hours in the day, so I don't think I'm any busier than anybody else. I just am using mine, you know, this way at this part of my life, so. Yeah, awesome. Well, that's good to hear. Um, so where do you see yourself in maybe 10 years from now? Mm. professionally professionally well my husband kids me that um i'll never retire and i think he's probably right (laughs) i don't know if i could stand it i mean i just i mean i can't stand to not be working or or creating something i think i just need to be creating and um in 10 years i don't know for sure where i'll be professionally but i hope that i'll still be teaching and i hope i will have been able to expand the research side of my interests and be able to do a little bit more um, research even if it's just research about my own teaching i would be interested in studying that more more in depth some self-studies um narratives about my work i think that sounds very fulfilling wow it's good to hear Okay, so I'm going to back up a little bit. It's something I meant to ask you earlier. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about maybe your best experiences, your best days, and then also some of your worst days. I think most of us feel like we have an understanding of what a professor is and what a professor does because, you know, those of us that went to college were around professors a lot. Um, But I'm sure there's a lot of things that you do that are behind the scenes and that people don't really know about. And I'd love to hear some of those great moments and some of those, you know, terrible moments, the moments that you dread as a professor, just to kind of enlighten the audience as to what, what actually goes on in a professor's life a little bit more. (laughs) Okay. Well, I would start with the, the bad day so we can get that out of the way. I, the thing that I like the least about my work, um, is grading. I just don't enjoy sitting down and grading. But once I get started, I, I'm interested in, in seeing my students' ideas and how things are, are coming out that I have um, given them experiences with. But I just, oh, it's not my favorite thing. If all classes could be pass-fail, I would love it. I would absolutely love it. <laughs> or if they could just grade themselves, <laughs> that would be great. 
Really? I feel like uh, so, so many teachers care so much about giving a representative grade to their students and, and making it, you know, not fair, but appropriate and, and right for each student. But you're kind of the opposite. You just care about the teaching. You don't really care about a grade, it sounds like. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I do care about giving them um, helpful feedback. So most of what I give them is like a, a narrative feedback about their work and what I found interesting about it or what I would like for them to develop more next time or in the future, or even sometimes I'll ask them to do the assignment again uh, because I really want them to know how to do it. And I don't want them to leave my class without, you know, showing that they can, can do whatever that special skill is. Um, but I also feel like grades are not a really fantastic indicator of a person's, you know, A, effort or, you know, B, determination, I think they're kind of, I don't know. I'm not sure if grades are the best way to evaluate people anyway. So I don't, that's my personal opinion. Okay. But let me talk about the great day, I guess. The, the bad days grading and the great day, I guess, would be, you know, when I'm having a bad day and I'm, I'm stressed out about, you know, um, work or family or just life in general. And I teach a class for a few hours and it just turns my heart around. I just can't be in a bad mood when I'm around my students. I love my college students. I love the campus atmosphere. I love the energy and I love kind of the vivaciousness. And the University of Houston is very diverse. We are a Hispanic and an Asian serving institution. And my classes are about 60% first generation college students. And I love those kids. I love how eager they are to learn. And they're so hungry for success and to lift their families. And they're so gracious about learning. They are so gracious. So I'm privileged to, to learn alongside them. And I guess a really great day happened to me. A really great day happened to me. I received an award from the university for my teaching. It was called the Teaching Excellence Award. And that was just the most amazing, wonderful, fantastic thing that um, acknowledged my work. And part of the process for receiving the award was I had to gather letters of recommendation from former students. And the, the neat thing was I had lots and lots and lots of former students that I had kept in touch with and that I could ask. And they wrote the most lovely things and talked about how they felt nurtured and supported and encouraged and that they felt like my example of having a family and having a career and balancing it was was good for them to see. And that to me was just so sweet and it validates so much of what I'm striving for in my work. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations on that reward. And it sounds like it's very well earned. You're, the fact that you say the happiest thing at work is when you're teaching means that you're doing the right thing. You're in the right place and you are helping the right people by being happy every day at work. Um, yeah. And so, you know, really congratulations, uh, not just for the award, but for finding the career that's right for you and, and doing the right thing to help the right people. And it's awesome that you recognize, um, you know, all, all the diversity of people that you're able to help and how for many of them, you know, you will leave a lasting impact on them because of your example and because of how you treat them and care for them. And that, that'll extend on for generations, uh, especially for those that are going to school for the first time. Um, 
you know, I definitely remember a lot of my college professors and have memorable experiences with them that, that really have defined who I am to some little degree. Uh, and so, you know, it's great that there are people like you out there doing good in the world and being around people that, that need a good support system. Uh, and at a very diverse place like Houston, uh, we need a lot of good support around us. And, and so thank you for serving and for working hard and being, being the professor that you are. Well, thank you. It's such a wonderful, wonderful um, career. And when I taught elementary school, I loved influencing the 25 kids in my class. And I felt like that was really worthy. But now I'm in influencing, you know, 150 um, pre-service teachers a semester who are then turning around and influencing thousands of children over their career. And that is just amazing to me. Well, awesome. Awesome. As we start to wrap things up, I'd love to hear uh, some of your advice for the next professor of anything. I mean, maybe specifically an education or a math instructor, but but really any professor. What what does it take to become a great professor? Um, and what does it take to become a great teacher or instructor as well? Well, there are so many things I could... I could list about being, you know, prepared academically and and being a lifelong learner who continually tries to improve and and stays up on research and those things. But I think um, what I'd like to say is that surround yourself with positive people and influences and you will like your job so much more. And I think that goes for any job and any position that you have and be that positive person for your colleagues too. You know, both of my parents were educators and I think it starts to kind of run in families, but my parents told me when I started teaching school to avoid the faculty lounge because it was full of complaining about the kids or the principal Mm. or the pay or parents or their spouses or whatever. And complaining is just such a waste of time. It's not productive and it makes your job seem like it's always uphill or like it's always drudgerous. So I would say surround yourself with positive people who build others up and who support progress, but they don't overreact and make mountains out of molehills. And they're really committed to the same things that you are. Like I'm committed to having balance in my life. And so I like to be around other people that are also striving for that so that we can support each other. And those are my people. So when you have positive colleagues, you find ways to collaborate with them at the university level for sure and to continue to grow. And that makes a great team. You know, that's true for any industry right there. Attitude, you know, really defines a lot about your career and about who you are. Um, If you have a positive mindset, um, you can, you can do a lot of great things. And, and that, that, phrase fake it till you make it really is true <laughs> um you just gotta have confidence you gotta believe you gotta try put in a hundred percent and and you know you can do a lot of great things with that attitude and with that mindset and and yeah being around the wrong people uh is is not gonna get you anywhere in life uh you know uh, there's, there's a quote that says you are the culmination of the five people you're closest to and that's so true, right? The five people you spend the most time with is who you are. And so if you're if you're surrounding yourself with people that hate their jobs, guess what? 
you're going to be hating your job too, even if it's completely different than all of your friends and colleagues. So that that is great advice. Um, And, you know, I appreciate you taking some time to, to talk with me tonight. Oh, it was a lot of fun for me. Thank you for reminding me about my journey and how difficult but joyful it was. Well, thank you. Thank you for your time, Carrie, and I'll let you go. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Michael.